0: that lobster person guy in Massachusetts. I mean, just a typical lobster fisherman, right? He's got the Massachusetts uh, uh, accent and all that kind of stuff, and he was cleaning traps, and he got swallowed by a whale. Did you hear that? He got swallowed by a whale. Amazing. And he said, it was. Un- I mean, it was not a pleasant experience. I, right? Right? I don't know about you, but that's not on my bucket list. I don't want to get swallowed by a whale. He got swallowed by a whale. I, I don't know what kind of, it might have been a humpback, some of you are probably looking it up on your phones right now, aren't you? It's okay, uh information, I tell you, right at our fingertips, right there. I mean, he you know, got swallowed by a whale. The whale realized that this was not food, right? Food, and immediately spit him out. Right? But he lived to tell the tale. So guess what, everyone? Jonah's not the only one who had this experience. We have a present day example of a guy who got swallowed by a whale and lived to tell about it. But immediately we think of that, right? Jonah. Oh yeah, Jonah and the whale. I mean, all that kind of stuff. Jonah and the whale. Jonah and the whale. Never mind, it was probably a fish or a whale or whatever else. You know, we, we argue about the theological implications of whether or not it was a whale or a fish. Who cares? Who cares? The point was, this guy got swallowed by something and lived there for how many days? Ah, you are all good at Sunday school, aren't you? Right? You know the answer. Three days in a fish. And I don't know about you, but even, I mean, even for that man who got swallowed for seconds in a fish, as an unpleasant experience, imagine being in a fish for three days, Whatever it is, that fish, I, I don't know where he was in that fish, right? I always think about that. Where was he? We oftentimes think of in the stomach. Well, really? But then I think of Nemo, finding Nemo, when they were just in the mouth of the, of the whale, right? Until they got to this point where they could go and they got released, kind of thing. Either way, not a, not a place I would want to be in, never mind for a few seconds, more than three days, though. Wow. Disgusting. Here's the thing. As we're going to talk about, and as we're going to start this morning and go through this series in Jonah, The book of Jonah is much more than about a whale. It just is. It's much more than about a fish and a guy who got swallowed by that fish. It is much more than that. And I hope that as we go through this series this morning and the following weeks, is that we will know that because really, quite frankly, what the book of Jonah is really about, at least from what my reading of it is, it is about God's mercy. Just unbelievable mercy that he has towards Jonah. And by the way, as a result, also is a snapshot of his mercy towards each and every one of us. Now, that being the case, let me just share a little bit. When we think of that word mercy, what do we think of? We have images in our mind, I think, that come when we hear that word mercy. You know, that that graciousness, that loving tenderness, that um, giving something that we don't deserve, that that unbelievable unmerited favor kind of thing when we think of mercy and certainly those are great images as well and that is certainly what we will discover here certainly the hebrew word for mercy alludes to but here's an additional thing that the word mercy at least in the scriptures particularly in the old testament kind of alludes to it also means to rest in the womb think about that when you think about the whale to rest in the womb i don't know about you but i don't remember resting in the womb I am told it's a perfect and was a perfect environment, right? Think about that. The perfect temperature, the perfect, you know, we had a, we, you know, I had a tube that was giving me food whenever I needed it and taking stuff away when I didn't need it, all that kind of stuff. I was, I was floating in fluid the entire time, and I remember none of it. The perfect environment, and I have no recollection of it. I'm sure none of you do either, right? And it, you know they say that um, it, that you know we are born and then we spend the rest of our life trying to get back to the womb, that perfect environment, because we understand how hard life can be. So as we move through this series, not only are we going to see that yes, God's mercy is that unmerited favor, that graciousness and kindness. It's also this idea, this imagery of to rest in the womb. We're going to be taking a look at how God's mercy works in Jonah's life. Jonah is perhaps the most famous minor prophet in all of Scripture. You don't even have to know or even have read his letter or the book of Jonah to know what the story is all about. He is the most famous out of the 12 minor prophets that are there. He is the most famous one. In fact, he is the one whom Jesus tends to quote more often than any other minor prophet. In fact, Jesus says, I will give you the sign of Jonah when he's talking to the religious leaders after they have wanted to perform more miracles and more miracles. And he begins to say, guess what, guys? Me performing more miracles for you isn't going to change your heart to follow me. All you want is just to have a show. And I'm not going to give that to you anymore. Here's what I will give you. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. That's what he is quoting here, this idea of being in the tomb for three days as Jonah was in the whale for three days. So Jonah plays an incredibly important role about in in terms of Scripture, in terms of what we learn from this as well. So this morning, here's the questions we're going to tackle when it comes to mercy, when it comes to God pursuing us with His mercy, when it comes to what God was doing in Jonah's life. Here are some questions I want us to kind of explore this morning as we go through this. There are questions such as, how does God show His mercy, and why and to whom does He show His mercy to? And not only that, in this case, how does God specifically show mercy to Jonah? And and specifically, how is that in many ways maybe how God may be showing mercy to each and every one of us? Because I'll guarantee you what image we may have about how mercy is shown to us by God is probably how we want it shown, but not always how it may be shown to us. Two very different views that we're going to see today in the book of Jonah. So let's start, and the way that we're going to do this this morning, is I'm going to reverse the order today um, of the points I wanted to share. I had it all nice and set, but then God chose the right Jonah the way it was written, and I had to reverse it. So we're going to do it God's way instead of my way. That's fine. God wins. It's okay. Anyways, I'm going to reverse order this thing. What I think should have been the last point is going to be the first point, and what is the last point should have been the first point. Make sense? Are you with me? No, some of you are not. Drink more coffee. Okay? All right? So let's take a look at how does God show mercy to Jonah? And in doing so, how does God show mercy to each and every one of us? I guarantee you it is probably not the way we would have pictured it. So here is the first point. How does God do this? How does God show mercy? This is how. Using nearly all means possible. Let me say that, Let me say that again. God uses nearly all means possible to show his mercy. Let's start and explore what this means and the means that God used to show mercy to Jonah in this wonderful passages here in the first chapter of Jonah. And by the way, the book of Jonah, in case you're wondering where it is, it's just after Obadiah before Micah. I hope that helps you. I know you were wondering. It's just after Obadiah, but it's right before Micah. And again, in case you don't know where that is, two options for you. One is take out your phone. Everyone's doing it. Might as well look it up that way. Or number two, if you have a Bible with you, go to the table of contents. Look it up there. It's a small book. You could easily pass over it, but it is such an important book. And by the way, this book fits in to our overall theme here at Summit Ridge that we are calling New Beginnings. This idea of having a new beginning. And we looked at last week, we finished up Philemon and that wonderful short letter that Paul wrote to Philemon over that slave Onesimus and how that new beginning are possible in relationships. Well, guess what? Another way that we can have new beginnings in our own life is because of mercy. If we want to have new beginnings in our own life, whether it is with relationships with others or with God, mercy is so, so crucial. So that's why we're looking at the book of Jonah. Okay? So, let's see the the all possible means that God uses to get Jonah's attention to show mercy to him. Begin with verse 1 of chapter 1 writes the following, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amidi, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. Now, interesting, Jonah is a prophet who is in northern Israel. By the way, this is not the only reference we have in Scripture to the prophet Jonah. He is also mentioned in Second Kings. Uh, as well in 2nd Kings chapter 14 verse 25 in which it is chronicling a king of northern Israel who actually did some reforms as a result of the prophecies that Jonah shared so Jonah is a real person or was rather he was a prophet in northern Israel and so this was not unusual And it says this, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. Now here's a question I always ask myself. I wonder, how did Jonah get this message? Right? How did Jonah get this message? How many of us would love to have a word from the Lord? You know what I mean? Audibly? Yeah, text? Some of you got to have it by text. Maybe a Facebook message? I don't know a Snapchat, whatever your preferred you know mode of communication is, wouldn't it be great if God just came to you and specifically said audibly or in text message form or in some other written form and said, go and do this. Ah, how great would life be? How clarity we would have, such clarity we would have To know what we should do and what we shouldn't do. How many of you would love this? You want to hear you wanna hear the clincher here? We have it. It's called the Bible. It's called the Bible. It's written. The Word of God. Word of God. It's actually written. Texts. Now is it for every specific oh God, I don't know. Oh Jesus, should I have chicken tonight or beef? (laughs) Jesus, please, please. And you turn over and it's quail. right oh god please i want direction should i have the chicken or the beef guess what i don't care i'm sure god is saying i don't care whatever you want you have free will chicken or beef either one i made it for your glory and for your for your you know to eat go ahead and eat it i don't care okay if you want to be a vegetarian fine be a vegetarian i think sometimes where we want clarity on i think god goes sure have at it. Sure. Have at it. I love it. I always, I always kind of laugh on the inside when Christians, fellow, fellow brothers and sisters say to me, yeah, the Lord told me I was to wear this today, or the Lord told me I was to eat this today. Great. Fantastic. You know what the Lord told me I should wear today? He didn't care. As long as I had pants and a shirt on, I'm good. Right? I mean, I think sometimes we can take this word of the Lord and really take it to really unhealthy areas, and take it to the extreme. But that gets back to here. How did Jonah receive this word of the Lord? We don't know. Certainly wasn't by text, it didn't exist then. It may have been a dream, it may have been a vision, it may have been from a person. God spoke in unique ways in the Old Testament throughout Scripture. He did speak in dreams and visions. He even spoke through a donkey. Right? You've heard of that story. Everyone knows about Balaam's donkey. He was being a donkey in all the right ways. Right? I mean, it's just... God uses whatever situations in unique ways to speak to the people He wants to speak to to communicate to them what He wants them to know. And brothers and sisters, let me just say that God is still doing that today. We have the Word of God here, primary source for us to hear what it is He wants to speak to us. And there are other things. We still have dreams and we still have visions and we still have people in our lives that may be speaking things to us that God may be using to speak through and that we may not always want to hear it or may not always hear it because we don't like the way that it happened or came to us. That doesn't mean it's not a message from God himself. So how did Jonah hear this? I don't know. I don't know. But he heard it. He heard it. And by the way, when you hear a word from the Lord, is that a pretty big deal? Is that something that you, you know, ought to pay attention to and listen to and maybe obey, uh, obey, right? Right? I mean, that's what we'd expect. How many of us, if we heard a word from the Lord, be like, yes, Lord, I, I will do it. Absolutely. Uh, right? Yeah, a little, a little. Oh, we're not, we're not raising hands. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, because we know how this goes. So he's supposed to go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it because their wickedness has come up before me. Interesting, the city of Nineveh was in modern-day Iraq, near Mosul, Iraq actually, northern Iraq. And in those days, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and the Assyrians were an incredibly powerful race of people. And not only that, they were incredibly detailed in how they treated people who were Those who that they conquered or otherwise, and they were incredibly violent towards these people. They would fillet them. They would behead them. They would do unbelievable wickedness towards them. If there was a country that was absolutely the worst country towards Israel, it was Assyria. And now Jonah has a word from the Lord. Go and preach. Because their wickedness is bad. Think about that for a moment. Think about, in your mind, the worst group. The person or the people that you think, man, I, God, don't send me there. Please. Do not send me there. What, what is that group or those, those people in your life? Th- that would be that. God telling you, hey, by the way, go to them. Preach, preach to them because their wickedness is pretty bad. Verse 3, this is Jonah's response. But Jonah, I love that word, but. Everything before that word is canceled out for everything that comes after it. Here's what comes after the word, but. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. <laughs> I love it. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid a fare, and boarded it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. I wonder how many times you go with Tarshish in a paragraph. Apparently, at least three. Jonah's response after hearing the word of the Lord to go to Nineveh is instead to go to Tarshish. Now, interesting, Tarshish was a city in Spain all the way to the edge of the known world. So, by the way, approximately 2,000 miles away as opposed to Nineveh, which is approximately 500 miles away to the east. Tarshish was 2,000 miles away to the west. And what was Jonah doing? He was trying to escape from the presence of the Lord. Questions, real quick. Questions. One is this Why did Jonah think he could escape the presence of God? Right? Really good question. Well, here's why there was a cultural understanding in his day, certainly of the surrounding communities, as we're going to find out on the sailors that he boards the ship that they had, that maybe he too had a little bit of, is that there was a belief that in those days that there were many gods and each god had their own specific reign and therefore were very limited. You had a god for the land. You had a god for the sea. You had a god for the mountains. You had a god for all of these different things. And the gods didn't cross paths. They respected each other's domains. And so Jonah understandably thought, well, my god's pretty big. Mm, I wonder how big he really is. Maybe he's not that big. Maybe if I go to the end of the known world, perhaps he won't be there at all. This was not uncommon. Brothers and sisters, this should not surprise us. This happens even today, in in which we contextualize and in many ways kind of have the culture in which we are in influence the Christianity that we practice. I want to share something with you today that maybe will surprise you. There is more than one way to practice Christianity in this world. The American way isn't the only way. It just isn't, right? In fact, I've been doing a lot of reading and a lot of um, listening to podcasts and otherwise about evangelical Christianity and how culturally evangelical Christianity has evolved over the years, and how we kind of wound up in the situation in which we find ourselves in as evangelicals, in, in, in terms of some of the things that we have done over the past couple of years, that many people are shaking their heads at, going, how could evangelical Christians do this? How could they believe these things? How could they go this way? My mic is just acting up, acting up so I apologize, I'm just trying to make sure it doesn't fall off. Um, so, anyways, and... So what is interesting about that is that historically, in fact, I'm reading one book right now called Jesus and John Wayne. (laughs) Fascinating study. In American evangelical, and I'm being very specific about this, because by the way, brothers and sisters, there's more than just us as Christians. We're evangelical Christians, but here's the problem that we think about ourselves. As, As evangelical Christians, we believe that we're right. Everyone else is wrong. Catholics, oh, don't get me started. They're wrong. There's beliefs about that in evangelical Christianity. Here's the interesting thing in evangelical Christianity that we, uh, we just accepted, I accepted it, is evangelical Christianity. One of the things that has marked evangelical Christianity is we always have to have an enemy. Always have to have an enemy that we have to fight against. It was really easy. In the Cold War, it was the Soviets. Oh, those are the bad guys. The good guys win. Who are the good guys? Americans. We're the good guys, right? The bad guys lost, right? We always have to have an enemy. After that, when the Cold War was won, finally, and the, and the, and the Soviet Union collapsed, all of a sudden now, evangelical Christianity began to get lost and said, well, what's our next enemy? How are we going to, what is our next enemy? And then all of a sudden became cultural. Well, we've got to have an enemy against uh, you know abortion and against homosexuality and feminism in fact that's the big time in the early 90s that all of a sudden now you began to see this re kind of uh, orientation towards masculinity you had promise keepers you know crop up which by the way was mainly evangelical christianity going to right but the problem with promise keepers according to this person and i agree with them is that promise keepers was kind of feminine-ish with men because, you know, there were men who were hugging and crying and wearing pastel colors and all this kind of stuff. And that just wasn't acceptable. No, no, no. We need men. And so you had Wild at Heart who came out. And, and John Eldridge talked about how every man desires to have a rescue and a mission and all this kind of stuff, and an enemy to fight, and all that kind of stuff. And then you had the purity movement in response to all of the cultural stuff and saying, guess what? Don't have sex before marriage, which is all good, and all that kind of stuff. And we've always had those enemies. But now we're discovering how deeply impacting this has been, and more so, how deeply damaging it has been. Particularly, for instance, with the purity movement towards women, in which we said on one hand, men need to be men, and we've got to have this you know, men have got to stand up and fight, and then all of a sudden, with the purity movement, we say, oh, men are weak. Women, please, you're my kryptonite. Don't tempt me. And if you do, we blame you. Wait a minute. We're supposed to protect you, and now we blame you. We always have to have an enemy in evangelical Christianity. Always. Always, always, always. Think about that. What's the enemy now? We always have to have an enemy. Enemy. You know, you get what I'm saying. We always have to have an enemy. That is a cultural reality. By the way, Christians around the world, they don't have that view. They do not have that view. The problem with us as evangelical Christians is we think everyone else should be like us as much as any other group says that they should be like us. This was the same here. How could Jonah think that he could escape God's presence? Oh, that's simple. Because the people around him, the cultures around him, believed that gods were limited. Were limited in where they ruled, and therefore, all of a sudden now, you could get out of a God's domain. You didn't have to do that. But I love this. Verse 4. However, God was going to have none of it the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. In other words, God doesn't just simply let Jonah go. No, he goes after him. He goes after him. He pursues Jonah. Interesting, there's a 19th century poem. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's four pages long. But it's called The Hound of Heaven powerful poem. Let me just read the opening lines to this poem. And it kind of, in many ways, I think, explains what God was doing here. The author, Francis Thompson, writes the following, I fled him, I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter up the stead hopes I sped and shot precipitated. A down titanic glooms of chasmed fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace. Deliberate speed, majestic instancy. They beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet. Here the author was talking about how he tried to flee God, but God pursued him. Not rushing, rushing, but no, just steady steady, steady, steady feet, persistent, going after him. So we find here, God pursues Jonah. Now here's what's interesting. How does God pursue Jonah? How does God pursue Jonah after Jonah completely disobeyed him and went the opposite way? How does God show mercy to Jonah? This is what is interesting. He does this, he hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. In other words, instead of coming to Jonah in a way that was like, oh, Jonah, hey, come on, let's talk about this. Let's have a conversation. I mean, what's going on here? No, no, no. God pursues him by sending a storm. That's the way he pursues him. I call that, in many ways, Merciful affliction. Merciful affliction. God pursues Jonah with merciful affliction. He pursues Jonah not in a way that is what we would, might think of, is, you know, nice and fluffy and, oh, come on, come on, let's, let's bring, the, no, no. God says, let's get a storm going. You disobeyed, there will be issues if you disobey. If you disobey, if you sin, there will be problems. And God sends a storm not to necessarily punish Jonah, but to reach out to him and get his attention, to pursue him. Merciful affliction. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says this, The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our heart upon the black horse of affliction. The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our heart upon the black horse of affliction. How many of us have ever thought that God pursues us with His mercy through affliction? Think about that. That one powerful way that God may pursue us with His mercy, to show us His mercy, is by sending and allowing affliction into a part of our lives. Now, let me just clarify this. This is not a Job situation. This is not as though where Job did nothing wrong and still got afflicted. That's not what this is. This is knowingly Jonah has disobeyed and in response God has sent a storm to him. He was at fault. He was there. Brothers and sisters, I want us to think about this for a second. If we have lived any amount of time on this earth, chances are we have done things, we have made decisions that have brought affliction. We were at fault. We have may we may have lost relationships, we may have lost jobs, whatever. We have may may have, you know, wound up in economic hardship because we did something that caused it. We may be at fault. God's mercy doesn't necessarily mean that we don't face the full force or brunt of those decisions. But what it does mean is that eventually we will not succumb to it. We will not die. We will not remain in financial ruin. We can have relationships restored. That's the difference here with God's mercy. Jonah went through the storm. How bad was the storm? Well, let's take a look. Then the sailors became afraid. And every man cried out to what? His God. There it is. The cultural reference. My God is God over this. My God is the God over that. Let's just call it to all the gods and maybe one of them will help us. Okay? Let's just throw it out there. And they hurled the cargo which was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the stern of the ship, laid down, and fallen sound asleep. What? How in the world could Jonah sleep when there was an incredible storm going on, the sailors were freaking out, they were throwing cargo overboard to lighten the ship, and Jonah, in fact, that word there, sound asleep, that that really doesn't... he, He was in REM sleep. I mean, he was in dream world at this point. He was in deep, deep sleep, resting. How could Jonah possibly... Sleep at a time like this. Well, maybe he thought he succeeded. Maybe he was just simply exhausted from trying to run. Whatever it was, here he was sleeping while everything else is going chaotic around him. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. So, all of a sudden, the captain wakes up Jonah and says, Jonah, hey, we're praying to our gods. We need you to pray to your God. Okay? Maybe one of them will respond and rescue us. Again, there it is. So, do you understand the picture that is going on here? Is that all of a sudden now, God is using affliction to get people's attention to show mercy to them. By the way, this is not the only example of this that we have in Scripture of this happening. There are several, many examples of people having to go through affliction in receiving God's mercy. That God uses those afflictions to share His mercy with them. I think of the women caught in adultery. The woman that had to, up until the point before she was going to get stoned, that she had to go through the public shame of being brought before the leaders, the elders, and then not only that, now being brought before Jesus, and the crowds that were gathering, and that woman, and as they said, she was caught in the very act. We caught her doing it. And now brought and had to go through all of those things all the way up until the very point where they were about ready to stone her for her sin. And Jesus steps in and says, yeah, he who was without sin cast the first one. And one by one they walk away. I think of the woman at the well who was going there at midday because clearly she was a person who was shunned in her community and would not have shown up in the early morning to get water, but instead goes at noon to get water and encounters Jesus. And Jesus doesn't necessarily pull her out of that situation right away, but meets her in it and extends mercy to her. I think about Peter, who betrayed Jesus, and at the third time that that crow, or that, that chicken or whatever, rooster, excuse me, rooster, that's what it is, you know, pros that all of a sudden now Peter realized what he did but then he has to go through all of that and then Jesus meets him and says Peter do you love me feed my sheep I I say this because maybe right now you're going through an affliction and you know what it may be your fault but I want to let you know that God's mercy is Maybe that's what he's trying to do in your moment is to extend that mercy to you. It's to say, guess what? You won't be defined by this. You will not succumb to this. You will come out of this. Turn back to me. Turn back to me. God will use nearly all means to do that. I love what Psalm 119, 67 through 71 says. says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Let me read that line again. Before I was what? Afflicted. I went astray. Before I realized what I was doing, before I realized how wrong I was, before I realized how sinful my actions were, before any of that, I did whatever I wanted to do. Who caused the affliction? Probably God. But now, I keep your word. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me with all my heart. I will comply with your precepts. Their heart is insensitive like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted. So they may what? Learn your statutes. I hate to share that with you, but sometimes, yes, God does afflict us. Not to necessarily punish us, but to redeem us, to rescue us, To show us His mercy. To all of a sudden see that what we have done is wrong so that we don't live in that, but rather we can be healed of it. Sometimes that's how God shows His mercy. Merciful affliction. How many of you had that as an image for God's mercy? And here's why He does this. Using nearly all means possible, The God of all shows His mercy to all. Using nearly all means possible, the God of all shows His mercy to all. Take a look at verse 7. It says this, And each man said to his mate, Come, let's cast lots, so that we may find out whose account this catastrophe has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now it's interesting, casting lots in those days was just using rocks. And they had two sides to the rocks. One was a dark side that they painted, and one was a lighter side that they painted. If the lighter side, if the rocks came up with two light sides, that meant yes. If it came up with two dark sides, it meant no. If it came up with one light and one dark, it's like, I don't know. (laughs) Throw them again. So when they were casting lots, they were saying, okay, was it you? No. Two darks. Was it you? No. Two darks. Was it you? No. Two darks. Then it came to Jonah. Was it you? Two lights. Oh, it was you. It was you. And so they said this to him. Tell us now, on whose account has this catastrophe struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? And what is your country and from what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made what? Oh, wait a minute. This God isn't bounded by a particular geographical area. This God made both the sea and the land. Then, verse 10, the men became extremely afraid and they said to Him, How could you do this? For the men knew that He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because He had told them. How could you do this? Let me just say this. By the way, the the, the things that we may do in our life, the decisions we may make, even the decisions that are wrong, by the way, may not just only impact us, but may impact others. We bring others into our mess. We bring others into our faults. We bring others into the things that we are doing that may be disobedient, may be absolutely wrong. We bring others into it. That's what can happen. My issue becomes your issue. Oh, and by the way, that extends to pastors of churches. Whatever I am struggling with, whatever my faults are, become yours. Welcome to the club. Every church has them. No, no pastor is perfect. Whatever I am wrestling with, whatever I am fearful of, whatever I I mean, it's gonna be long. It's not gonna be too long before you all are Green Bay Packer fans. I know it. I pray often. <laughs> I pray often. I'm just waiting for you all to become enlightened. Right? It's not going to be long. I mean, it's just just over time. That's what happens. Whatever is the pastor's issues, whatever the pastor is wrestling becomes what you may wrestle with or at least become a victim of that. It's just inevitable. You see it with kids. Whatever the parents may be going through, whatever they're doing, the kids suffer as well. It happens. The same thing here. Jonah, although he made a, a, a decision that only at least initially impacted him, he now has brought in an entire group of people who had no, had no responsibility in this whatsoever. It was now their issue. They were now suffering because of what Jonah did. Let me just say this: there is two other, another side to this. Yes, there are things that we do that are our fault that cause affliction, but then there are things that may be happening to you because of someone else's decision. Know the difference. Know the difference. It's interesting that when Jonah says this, he responds first and foremost to who he is in terms of his race and his culture group. I'm a Hebrew. And then secondly, oh yeah, by the way, I I follow God, who made both the sea and the land. This is going to be very important as we move on through this book because who he is as a Hebrew will play a dominant role more than who he serves going forward because if he has a choice between serving God or championing his people he's going to champion his people he's going to champion his people I'm going to go to the Assyrians no I'm not they were cruel to us I'm not going to do that that's what's going to happen here in fact I love what Timothy Keller says in his book on Jonah he says that there are many people who have no idea what they should be living for or the meaning of their lives nor are they any guide to tell right from wrong. God looks down at people in that kind of spiritual fog, that spiritual stupidity, and He doesn't say, you idiots. When we look at people who have brought trouble into their lives by their own foolishness,